take me right back to the trap. Jack, choo-choo. batter up. Hear that call. The time has come for one and all to listen to the A League of Their Own Recap podcast. I'm your host, Carolyn Bergier. If you haven't already, please give this podcast a follow on Instagram at League of Their Own Pod. And more importantly, make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Rate it five stars. You know the drill. Today, I'm recapping episode six of season one. It's called Stealing Home, and it's written and directed by Will Graham, who is also the co creator and showrunner of A League of Their Own on Prime Video. And most importantly, he's my guest for this recap. And because of all of the positions that Will has on the A League of Their Own team, we're going to get a little bit more high level. And that means that there are some spoilers. So heads up if you're one of what I imagine are two people who are listening to this podcast and have yet to finish the season. What are you doing? All right. Let's dive into what may just be my favorite episode of season one. Coming up to the plate, let's make a lot of noise for Will Graham. I hope you're not sick of talking about A League of Their Own yet. No, I'm I'm definitely not sick of it. We worked on this show for so long um, that it's honestly, it's just been amazing that people want to talk about it <laughs> and that the story something to people and it's it's been pretty incredible yeah i mean is this fan response kind of what you expected what you hoped for even more i don't know what i um (laughs) Um, no it's it's definitely more passionate and more full and more more i mean you work you work really hard on something and it sort of feels like yours and you have this feeling of like oh we're gonna put this out and like maybe it will just disappear into the pond the way that like so many TV shows seem to do now. Cause there is so. Right. Much. But I think the response, first of all, it tells me that there's a real hunger for these kind of stories. Yes. And that people aren't getting them. And second of all, it's just incredibly moving to see, you know, there've been all these, tweets and posts about people watching with their families and, you know, someone who was watching with their mom and came out to their mom in the middle of the Mm -hmm. show. And uh, someone, you know, who said that their grandmother watched the show and called them midway through crying and apologized because they'd never accepted their queerness. And, you know, there's hundreds of those stories out there now. And more than anything, I don't think I expected that, but it really makes all of it feel so worth it. I love that so much. I mean, that was one of my worries too. And also part of why I'm doing this podcast is because one, I think there is so much to talk about with every episode. There's just so much that's being told, so much more to the story, so much backstory, but also it feels like shows that are released this way all at once on streaming people who are the hardcore fans binge them the first weekend and then a new thing is out the next week and it's like how can we keep this conversation going Mm -hmm. forever will yeah we want it going forever (laughs) if that's okay with you available for that uh until we do season two and i do think you know it's something we had a lot of conversations about whether to release the show weekly or release it all at once. Ultimately, I think part of it was there is a lot to this story and the show sort of does become itself um, more over the course of the season, which was 
intentional in some ways. And also that because there are some very big things happening right now uh, on Amazon in the next few days, uh, um, Thursday Night Football is starting and then Lord of the Rings. Right. So I think there was a feeling of it may be a good thing for the show if those things happen and then there's only one game or there's only two episodes of Lord of the Rings. And then hopefully there's sort of a, a whole new set of people who find the show. And, and look, there's a whole season here you can watch. So I'm not the programmer, but I think that's part of what the thought was uh, behind it. Okay. I guess I'll buy that because I was a little bit sad about not hosting weekly watch parties, but I do plan on doing that leading up to season two, uh, which we're hoping an announcement. Well, I've been on Fire Island uh, for like the past five days, so I don't know what's happening in the real world. You haven't been renewed yet officially, right? No, I don't think. Okay. So in general, Amazon usually says that they take a month to look at their data and just sort of see okay. how all the indications that we have or the show is doing well. It's been number one on the service ever since it launched. It's even doing well internationally, which I think is something that we weren't completely sure about. But it's a big show and we need people to keep watching uh, and keep finding it. And beyond that, I think something that we thought a lot about in making the show is the movie is a big universal story. This is also a big universal story that is true. Uh, Almost everything in the show is based on research and it happens to center characters of color and queer people. And I've been watching and relating to straight characters um, since I was a kid, because there wasn't a preach. (laughs) I think here is that this is a big universal story that is for straight people. That is for uh, teenagers. That is for their grandparents. But in experiencing it through these characters who aren't, who are usually the, the sort of fourth character on, on the list that it also builds up empathy and understanding for these women and people like them who are living now. And, um, and so far, I think um, we're seeing a, a lot of that happen and a lot of bridges getting built, which is pretty amazing. I love that so much. So before we get into episode six, can you talk a little bit about how you became paired up with Abby to do this in the first place? Yeah, I was super lucky. So Abby and I knew each other um, a little bit. We were we had a couple of really good friends in common and we'd gotten to know each other as she was doing Broad City and I was doing the Onion News Network and then Mozart in the Jungle. And I always just liked her enormously and I, and I really admire Broad City, what she and Alana did, but especially I loved Abby has this amazing combination of like real humor that can sometimes be absurd, but also emotional vulnerability um, Mm -hmm. that you could feel um, even through the absurdity of, of some of the stuff in Broad City and some of the stuff in a league of their own. So anyway, we, we happened to be having dinner around the time that Sony had said yes to me uh, adapting the movie into a show. And I was sort of terrified because I don't think I definitely didn't expect them to say yes. And then it's like one of those moments where you're like, Oh, okay, great. Um, this will be so, uh, great. But the enormity of what the movie is and what the stories are and, and the enormity of the opportunity felt really big all of a sudden. So I started talking to Abby about what I'd learned and doing research and her eyes lit up and she talked about playing softball as a kid and, you know, I think I always knew and we always knew 
that this was a show that was going to need to be kind of ridden by a team because ultimately it's just too big for yeah um, any one person's lived experience. And we really felt super strongly about all of the stories feeling authentic and feeling like they have a lived experience at their core. So I think that feeling of a team writing the show really started with me and Abby. Like both of us have said to each other, like we never would have written this show exactly this way without the right. one. It truly started with both of our voices coming together and then Desta's as well and our incredible writer's room and Alison Faust, who was involved in the development, Liz Coe, Natalie So, who did our research, uh, Justine Siegel, who was in charge of our baby. You know, I could, I could literally do the entire rest of your podcast episode just listing um, the incredible team that made this show. Save it for the Emmys. Yeah, it is teamwork. <laughs> When I think about the movie and the people I know that consider the movie to be their favorite movie, it's usually women mm -hmm. in my life. What was your experience when you first saw A League of Their Own? Um, I saw League. So it was one of my mom's favorite movies. So what you're saying. So it was on in my house a lot. But also I was like... I was a really... You know, there's some... There's so many different versions of how people realize that they're queer. Right. I think... I at six had the like very profound sense that I was different and like that there was something quote unquote wrong with me, but like I had no vocabulary for that or what the difference was. Um, and my dad was like, you know, there's an athlete in there somewhere. And he was like, you know, playing sports will probably give him confidence. So I played seven years of little league baseball and I basically like cried through the entire experience because I think I felt like I was kind of undercover as a boy somehow. And I was going to be like discovered. I was not yeah. good at, some people are good at being in the closet and later in life that becomes a problem for them. I was, I was not. So there was something about the movie that I think spoke to that feeling of, you know, feeling like you're not supposed to be on the field, but it's okay to be there. And I think looking back at that from an adult perspective, one of the things I admire about it so much and one of the things that we tried to do in sort of, in some ways, the main thing that we tried to take and adapt from the movie was the tone. Yeah. Um, and so often when we tell the story of, of kind of firsts, which the women of the AG PBL were, and certainly people like Connie Morgan, Tony Stone, Mamie Johnson, who Max's character is inspired by were also first. I think we tell, tend to tell those stories with this sort of, they know what they're doing is important and it's a noble mission. And somehow they're like stronger, impossibly strong, and you could never be like them. And instead, Penny Marshall in making the movie made this story about really flawed kind of weirdos um, <laughs> daddy, who want to play this game. And, and that's really all they care about and they're thinking about and they're hilarious and, so we tried to bring that same sort of unpretentiousness to the show, I guess. Yeah. If that makes sense. And and that's what I, I really love about the movie too. Well, episode six is phenomenal. Every episode is so good. But for me personally, episode six stood out and not just because of Rosie O'Donnell. But in this episode, the Peaches are trying to defy the odds to make the championship game. Uh, Carson and Max, they're really coming into their own instead of just trying to go along with what other people expect from them or want them to be. Tell me, in your own words, about the 
themes that you really want to explore in this episode and also the decision to bring in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a few different questions and, and answers in there. And I think starting with sort of where the episode came from, I guess. Uh, yeah. It came from, you know, the bigger arc of the show in in um, Max's story and in Carson's story is kind of about finding your team. And we knew from doing all of our research and talking to women who had played in the league at the time who were queer, um, some of whom, like Mabel Blair, have now spoken publicly, um, that there was a gigantic queer community here. And when they described the experience, they were kind of like, yeah, you showed up. And for a while, you were just like, you know, everyone's married, everyone's around. And then slowly you kind of started to get a feeling from someone. And then, you know, maybe you had a beer with that person and you started talking and you realized that person was dating another person. And then eventually like you all went to a bar together. So we sort of tried to like build the DNA of the way they told those stories into the show. You know, Carson shows up and from the start, she's having these charged interactions with Greta. And in a different version of the show, that might've been the only queer narrative but instead they sort of slowly are charting themselves or Carson is slowly charting herself as part of this bigger world and realizing that a lot of and even maybe most of the people around her may be queer um, and so we knew that we really wanted to later in the season go into queer spaces and then to be honest um, Mabel Blair uh, I'm still adjusting to the fact that I can talk openly about Mabel's contribution to the show um, and she's not the only um, queer woman who played baseball at the time who has contributed a lot to the show, but the others are not out and are not completely open. So Maybell told us about being at a gay bar with a couple of other players that was raided and escaping through the window Whoa! Um, with somebody else and then driving off in a car. And she, the way that Maybell tends to tell stories is in this very, oh, this was just a time, you know, it was a thing that happened. Um, and part of what I think we've gotten used to with her and other people is being able to hear some of the pain that's underneath that, that maybe isn't shown at first. So yeah, like, we knew pretty early on that we wanted to do that. And that came from her story and we wanted to pair, um, cause there's always a danger. There was a danger with this show because we focus so much on telling the stories through a lens of joy which I think we're really proud of, but there's always the danger that it turns into like Disneyland or it turns into like, um, like it wouldn't have been nice if things were like this, you know? But, right. So we felt like we needed to pair the moment of this discovery of a community with also a sense of how fragile um, that could be. And then the Wizard of Oz, um, I'm... I've always been interested in the history of queer communities and I had the idea of wanting to do an episode that maybe had a movie at the core of it. The Wizard of Oz, I think, speaks to queerness and has always spoken to queerness in so many different ways, right? And part of that is the idea of finding community, but the answer is kind of inside you. Yeah. Right? And then part of what's interesting about that is that that narrative is and has been mostly a white narrative. So at the same time, we kind of knew that we wanted to pay tribute 
to the movie and and sort of have Carson who's walking out of the movie crying because she feels like she's seen a reflection of herself and then also have Clance who's interrogating the movie and sees it right. corrupt in the same way as the factory and everything else that she's starting to see around her. So much I love about this episode, but I didn't know that story about Maybell leaving yeah. through the back of a bar that was raided with the players. That is, wow. I think it would surprise people how much of the show is really directly based off of anecdotes that we um, heard from people. Uh, yeah. And even the parts that don't necessarily seem like they would be. With the casting of Rosie for this role, did you know that you wanted uh, Rosie in it from the beginning? Or was this role written and it was like, who would play it? It would be fun to bring back Rosie. Oh, interesting. Um, A little bit of both of those and also neither of those exactly. Um, (laughs) And and it came about the way that a lot of things did on the show in a little bit of an unexpected kind of organic way, which is... Um, Abby knew Rosie. Originally, we sort of said, we don't, um, we had an amazing conversation with Gina Davis. We've had amazing conversations with a lot of the cast. And we said to ourselves, well, in future seasons, if we're lucky enough to have them, it would be really fun to kind of play with the original cast some and, um, and that kind of thing. But we really wanted the show to kind of stand on its own at first. But right. it's not a reboot of the movie, really. Right. It's, uh, going back and looking at the stories underneath the movie. And we didn't, we, we wanted to include a lot of love letters to the movie, but we didn't ever want to blur the lines in a way that people wouldn't understand that the show wasn't doing something different, but yeah, Rosie. And, um, and at some point she said to me, like, Rosie wants to come to the writer's room. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. But like, you could tell we were both like kind of nervous about it. Cause it was like before any of this was really real in the, part where we were still kind of planning out the season. And so Rosie watched the pilot and she liked the pilot a lot. And then she came into the room and she told us, you know, how she felt like Doris was queer, but like Penny Marshall basically said, like, we can't go there, which again, it was 1992. So it's hard to, hard to falter for that. Um, And, and in the middle of the conversation, Rosie also said something that I, really sort of internalized, which was, she said, like, have fun. Like, it's always great to make something, but it doesn't always get to matter. Um, Mm. And that was something I think we kind of held for the rest of it. But in, um, I don't know exactly how we arrived at doing this, but we decided to kind of pitch her roughly what we were thinking about for the season. Um, And so we kind of went back and forth and people from the room jumped in and we got to the gay bar and sort of pitch that out. And I think afterwards, Rosie was like, well, you know, something I could do in the show is like, I could be the, uh, the bartender who maybe is sort of like a little more on the butch side. And she was like, and maybe it's not even a big role. Although I think it, it actually turned into one. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe it's just, you know, something just people notice. Um, and so the character of I, I think we knew that there would be somebody running that bar and that that yeah. person be significant to Carson because we wanted to have this moment on sort of touching she on she's not alone and and that there are possibilities for her relationship with Greta that she hasn't considered. Um, but once Rosie said that, we really started to sort of build it for her. And then it was just such a weird dream, wonderful moment on set. And I think we were all kind of pinching ourselves 
with her there. And I think in retrospect now I've realized like she was also quite nervous. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't think she'd done something exactly like that before. Um, but it, it was amazing having her there and just having her support throughout this process and her kind of saying like, yeah, go for it. And don't, don't be too careful. Yeah. Has been really nice. That's amazing. I love how her role as bartender was also kind of giving Carson a lay of the land of kind of like what's possible in being queer and what it's all about because Carson's experience is really just through Greta and through her own personal experience and hasn't, you know, she has enough that she's dealing with there that she hasn't even thought of like, well, what's the rest of the community looking like? And, um, you know, she's had kind of the conversations with, with Max a little bit, but still like can't even recognize at first that she's in a queer space. Right. And that leads to that scene with Lupe and Jess where right. Carson thinks that uh, Lupe's trying to get treated and Lupe thinks that Carson's about to out her, and um, which was a really, really fun scene. Uh, yeah. To, um, yeah, I think, you know, part of what we wanted to do with this show was uh, to really illustrate different kinds of queer journeys. And like I said before, I was somebody who I think probably by the time I was six, I knew that something was different. I think Carson is someone who who maybe had that suspicion or that feeling, but in some ways has been asleep for a lot of her life. And her marriage with Charlie hasn't been bad, you know, as she says in the pilot. Um, it's warm bread with butter. Warm bread with butter uh, <laughs> versus pizza, which is a whole other conversation we can have about. With <laughs> but, uh, I think we wanted to tell the story of someone who finds themselves without what we would now think of as like a quote unquote normal teenage coming out um, experience. Right. uh, And you're right. Like Greta is someone probably who from the time that she was a teenager knew a little more uh, what she was into and has sort of crafted her whole identity around the response to that in some ways. So at, at first you know, Carson's view of queerness is through Greta, but really rapidly she starts to be internalizing other voices as well. And in some ways that puts her um, almost ahead of, of Greta in some ways in terms of her own acceptance or her own willingness to be out. But I think it is really important to say that Greta's right. You know, we have a tendency from a modern day queer perspective to hear someone saying, oh, I don't know if I could handle what it means to really be out or what the consequences of that at this time, it was incredibly dangerous and she's had a firsthand experience with that. And, and then they have another one in this episode. So we really tried to craft those conversations so that you could see both sides of them and neither wrong. Yeah. It's interesting because then you also have, Lupe and Jess, who seem to have been going through their their best hoe phase uh, during the season, and they've been going to this bar. And, you know, you can imagine that they were both before coming to the league, probably knew that they were queer. And it's Greta and Joe who seem to be the most cautious in terms of going to these spaces. So what do you think is the difference in why Lupe and Jess are a little bit more fearless 
about it? Well, I think, first of all, because Greta's, as we've found out in the previous episode and, and to some extent in this episode too, Greta has been horribly traumatized by being found out by her parents and by um, one of the loves of her life, Dana, being yeah. institutionalized. Yeah. So I think in response to that, what she's done, and I think in some ways this is heroic, um, is she's built an identity where she can have fun and she can experience freedom and she can be the wild card and the one who makes every night feel magical and special. But she doesn't allow herself to have real intimacy because mm-hmm. in some ways that's connected to the sense of danger uh, and to what happened with um, with Dana. Uh, yeah. Lupe and Jess, I think, are more on the butch side of things, uh, for one thing. So there's a little bit of, in both of their characters, a sense of like um, devil may care and they might not worry about the consequences um, as much. And then Carson, I think, think is somewhere uh between them yeah all of the scenes that take place in the bar are so great and i love how lupe when carson first goes in and kind of the double meaning of you're playing for the other team or (laughs) and how quick lupe actually goes into this mode that we haven't seen since dove has been around where she's actually a little bit nervous and afraid and is like, no, 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 it's not what you think, you know? And, and then as soon as she realizes what's going, what's actually going on, how quickly she goes back to get us beers to Carson (laughs) and sends her off. What is their relationship at at this point in the season? Uh, You mean Carson and Lupe? And Lupe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think they've really been through the ringer, right? Uh, right. Partly because uh, Carson was sort of put it into a leadership role. Um, and uh, and Lupe wasn't, um, even though they were probably equally qualified. And in some ways, that's probably because of white privilege, right? And Lupe was blamed for the fight. Uh, right. And her sort of fiery Spanish temper was blamed. But of course, we know she's not even that in of itself is a racialization of her to, to make her more white passing. Uh, Right. And uh, I think she has a fair amount of resentment towards Carson built up at this point. And I think she is right in some ways, you know, Carson is innocent and probably that innocence could be a little annoying um, to, uh, to someone who's fought a little more for their uh, identity, but those tensions have really come to a head um, in episode five and the right. beginning of an understanding of each other um, has started to form. And then I think you can see in Roberta's performance that her mind is kind of blown here. Um, yes. That Jess knew this the whole time and didn't tell her and that both Greta and Carson have been together uh, and are both queer and, you know, it's the start, start of a different kind of co- community where if the bar wasn't rated, maybe that community would have played out in the bar, but instead it plays out on the field. Yeah, I think that there's definitely probably a sense for Lupe leading up to that of like this this person couldn't possibly understand me. She's been privileged. She gets all these things that, that I want and I get blamed. I get the short end of the stick, but then in finding out that they have this 
thing in common, then maybe she can finally see her and cut her some some slack and be like, no, no, we are on the same team at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, I think also being on a team is hard. Like you don't get to pick the people that you need to work with the same way that we don't at work or in other settings. Part of what we wanted to do was really, there are no bad guys um, on the team. There's no one who's sort of uh, working against the team, but to be really vulnerable with each other is hard, especially when you're carrying uh, uh, your own histories with you. Um, So we didn't want to make that seem easy. Uh, which in some ways I think with the movie only being two and a half hours long, sometimes it feels a little bit like, you know, she catches the ball that uh, Rosie or Madonna throws at her and then they're like best friends. uh, Yeah. For life. And, and I don't think that's, it's that easy uh, in real life on teams or in queer communities. Um, Yeah. Because we are definitely not, but we are not perfect mirrors of each other. And of course, that's being explored with Lupe and Jess and Carson and Greta here, but it's also being explored with Matt and uh, with Max and uncle Bert uh, on the other side of the story. Right. Right. Which I definitely want to get to, especially just the, the parallels of what's happening in this episode from the beginning of the episode, we do have the call that Beverly gets about how they want to trade some of the best players from the peaches to the other team. Now, as this episode is going along, I'm, you know, and they're, they're winning and things are going great. Even before we get to the end scene, I'm just like, when does the other shoe drop? Like, there's no way things are going to keep going. But I kept thinking on, on first watch, I didn't see the raid coming. I was like, Carson's going to wake up the next day and like Greta and Joe are going to be gone or something like that. Mm. It were you looking to kind of fake out the audience or have that tension there the whole time? Um, I don't think that we were looking to fake people out as much as we wanted them to give a, uh, to have a full experience of joy along with these characters. And then, like I said before, also kind of have to experience the fragility. But I also think, I think that we really worked hard on because in some ways we knew without spoiling the end of the season, I guess uh, we knew that the peaches weren't going to end with the, a completely clean victory. So in some ways we knew that this was going to be the high point. Um, yeah. And that this was the energy of like, we can do nothing wrong on the field and off the field. And, you know, in the wizard of Oz sort of sense, like it's almost better than a dream. Um, yeah. Of course that's probably a little too easy to last. Yeah. Let's talk about Bert and Max and Gracie and Clance, all all of that that's happening. So this is where we really go from birdie to full, full Bert. Yeah. Even I love how the last episode five ends with Bert saying, maybe you came here to find a little piece of home. And then also tying back into that Wizard of Oz theme, like right at the beginning, that was such a beautiful way to go from one to the next. But uh, Max is still kind of uncomfortable with this idea of how out Bert is 
in his life and is just kind of shocked that he can just walk around like that um, to a point where she thinks like, oh, it must make things so much easier just walking around as a man. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that Max doesn't know in, right. in a way that is similar. You know, that's part of what's driving the scenes with Max and Carson is this sense of really trying to explore and find a vocabulary that makes sense with each other. I think Bert's character, and he's so beautifully portrayed by Lee Robinson, um, just uh, when you go into the history, you find these amazing stories of trans people who found a way to pass and they lived their lives authentically. And of course there were consequences that came with that and they often had to move and live life on the road, but there were also incredible love stories. And I think in a lot of ways, that was really the root of Bertie and Gracie. Uh, yeah. Was wanting to give uh, them a real love story and wanting the audience to give a real love story um, and a trans character who isn't trying to figure themselves out, uh, who knows themselves and uh, is more of a mentor um, for Max here. And Max, I think it has been so compartmentalized, right? And she sort of started the season um, where this one part of her life, she was a ball player and the other part of her life, she was Tony, her mom's daughter. And then slowly those worlds have started to come together more. She couldn't keep them apart, but she still doesn't really understand herself. Um, and that I think is a big part of what's happening in this episode you know, Carson has sort of a romantic journey that winds up taking her into a queer space. Max has a family journey that winds up taking her into a queer space. Yeah. And it's not until Max kind of stops playing baseball for a hot second. I mean, she even says to Carson, you know, I haven't been, been pitching that she's actually like, I need to like she knows she can easily just obsess about baseball forever and not really look inward and figure out what's going on with this, um, yeah. with this big part of her. A really important thing, which is both that pitching is notoriously such a mental game and you're right. You're kind of by yourself on the mound and whatever's happening in your life. I mean, people have different skills to kind of distance themselves from it and get, get into the moment, but you see historically, and even now pitchers go on these incredible winning streaks and then incredible streaks where they just can't seem to get a ball over the plate. So we wanted to explore the sports journey here uh, with Max, but really explored in a nuanced way that, that came into the story of her identity and like you think yeah. that kind of starts with her saying like I have to put this down for a minute because she's smart enough to realize that she's almost holding on to the ball so tight because she doesn't know herself or trust herself well enough to just relax up there and part of that is that she's been given so few opportunities um you know most of us fail terribly uh, a couple of times that the things that we love to do, but it hopefully happens early in our careers in a way that, um, you know, isn't a public spectacle, but Max didn't. <laughs> so, you know, this moment is really, I think, a reckoning for her in a lot of ways. And when Clance meets Uncle Bert for the same time and is like, that's your Aunt Bertie and has some just really 
unfortunate things to to say to Max. When she's saying that, I mean, it sounds like she's just really oblivious to the fact that Max could be anything like Bert, but they're so close. And I feel like Clance sees so much. How does she miss this or does she miss this or? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a very, um, it's a very smart and interesting question to ask. And I think you could, um, in, in a fun way, like there's probably multiple, um, good answers to that question. I think that Clance loves Max. And from the time that they were kids, they've been two peas in a pod. And they were the two two people in class who didn't quite fit in with the other girls who who formed their own kind of secret world and have always had each other's backs. But as Clance says early on in the show, Clance has a version of reality where they're both going to get married to men that hopefully they find men that they can like enough, but they're going to live next door to each other. And they're going to have these lives that, um, that look like each other's and Max, um, isn't far enough along on her journey to say either to herself or to Clance, um, at that point in the season, Oh, that's, that's not going to happen. So you could make the argument that Max has allowed Clance to believe things about her that weren't true. You could make the argument that Clance is so oblivious because it's 1943. And unless people had an aunt or uh, someone in their neighborhood who was quote unquote that way, um, you might never bring that frame to looking at it. Clance might just think, oh, she's a ball player. That's why she right. did that. And we saw that over and over again in the research is that, you know, the idea of being a, a ball player almost became a gender expression um, uh, in and of itself. Um, or you could make the argument that Clance doesn't want to see it because she's holding on to the max that she thinks she's known this whole time. And it's hard in our friendships, even ones that are so deeply rooted in love to let people change um, and yeah. people be themselves. So, I mean, Max and Clance are just one of the real hearts of the show. I love them so much. And we talked a lot in the writer's room about not wanting this moment to be too easy um, because that might go into a kind of wish fulfillment for the audience. Yeah. Um, We talked a lot about the difference between sort of wish fulfillment versus telling authentic stories with a joyful lens. And this was one of those moments where uh, we just thought it wasn't going to get to be that easy. That's one of the things I love about the show, because it does feel that it is grounded in probably what would happen. And it can be hard watching it in 2022 with the way the world is now of being like, well, of course, it's obvious that she's gay. But back then, yeah, most people probably thought they never walked across the street from someone who was gay, much less was best friends with one. Yeah. So you can definitely see. Max, just like Max says to Carson in the scene in the locker room in this episode, Max isn't fully butch presenting. Right. Carson isn't fully femme presenting. Um, And even queer culture at this time, not exclusively, but was largely organized into butch and femme dynamics. They both find themselves somewhere in the middle. Um, And I think that's part of what's drawing them together here. But it might also be 
part of what um, even not from a 2022 perspective has made it hard for clients because, you know, Max has been actively trying to be everything that her mom wants her to be up until really just the previous episode. She's been compartmentalized and playing both sides of it too. I think as we all, as, as a lot of us do. In that scene in the locker room, Max goes there dressed in kind of the kind of clothing that Gracie was teasing her for at the bowling alley. It looked like she was dressed to go to church, which is maybe the first time that we see Max dressed that way when going to meet Carson. Yeah. Why? Uh, so there's, there's probably a bigger conversation that we could have about Mac Carson's <laughs> wardrobe over the course and everyone's wardrobe and Tracy field. Oh, who is I talked to Tracy. We have a whole episode queued up to put out about wardrobe. Yeah. So <laughs> amazing. And, and her answers to that, um, might be different and probably would be smarter than, than mine. Um, I think Bert, the interaction between Clance and Bert is like a bucket of cold water in the face for Max. Yeah. And it makes her, and you see her in these episodes having these moments of reversion where she almost wants to go back to her mom as a place of comfort. Yeah. um, And then can't quite do it. I think that moment with um, her and Clance after Clance meets Bert is probably heartbreaking. And I think she's probably in a little more of a, She's regressing a little bit at that point. And part of what we wanted to tell you and what I really tried to put into the script and in the, the um, performances as well is this idea that like accepting yourself and being able to tell your own story isn't a straight line. And it's usually at the moments where things are falling apart that we find a way to move forward. So that was important to us in shaping Max's story in this episode is that um, it didn't feel like uh, just a few steps and then she got there that you couldn't totally tell if she was about to go way back in the other direction or if she was going to show up at the party with with Bert. And even then when she shows up to the party, her first instinct is like, maybe, maybe I should leave. And it really takes... Gracie kind of stopping her and saying, you know, why are you always running away? And I just, I love Gracie in this episode because she's just so radically accepting of people for, for who they are and of Bert and just seems kind of fearless and proud to be with Bert. And it's just, it's so nice to, to see that again, speaking to the love story, um, of it all and not to have everybody, every character be hiding or shameful. And some people are just like, this is my life and I want to enjoy it. No, I mean, it would be fun to think about uh, or write a version of this episode that was just from Gracie's perspective. Um, (laughs) Because I think her first priority is always going to be herself and Bert. Um, Yeah. uh, And she's angry at Max for... Um, hurting Bert in that way. On the other hand, I bet that Gracie saw it coming and that when Bert was making that suit for Max, Gracie was like, I mean, that had to be kind of heartbreaking for her, right? Because she knows what it would mean to have somebody else in the family wear the suit Um, Mm. and how much 
Bert might want to meet someone who's like him. Uh, and, uh, and of course Max is that, but also isn't, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think Gracie is good at reading people and is probably a couple steps ahead of both Max and Bert here would be my guess. A quick question, a little bit unrelated, but going back to earlier in the episode when they get their paychecks and they notice that they're short for the hours they worked, I'm assuming that that's something that's rooted in history and that that happened to people working these wartime jobs. But I was wondering, was that just the black employees getting screwed over or did that happen across the board that people, um, that their overtime was considered volunteering? Uh, do you know, I think it, um, it happened, uh, across the board to some extent, but much, much more to, uh, to black people and especially to black women who were, yeah. and we sort of touch on this in the pilot who were the last, um, people led into these factory jobs, which were far better paying than the, um, the sort of like home employment that a lot of them had come from. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and we're also unfortunately the first people to be uh, screwed over and the first ones to be fired when, you know, white men did come back um, from the war. So we wanted to tell that story and partly tell the story of things are changing very radically in this time. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're changing cleanly, right? Women are allowed to play baseball, but as we see in episode two, there's a heckler in the stands who no one is shouting down. Right. uh, Who's uh, saying all the things he's saying. The factories let them in here um, and needs them desperately, but isn't going to completely pay them for their work because um, they don't have to. Uh, Right. And the legal structures aren't in place to... Um, keep them safe. And that was true with uh, wages and finances, but it was also true with physical safety. Like there were a lot of accidents uh, in the factories because they were trying to produce so much. Um, so it was our way of um, of doing a little bit of that story through Clance's awakening of maybe all of the stories that I've been told uh, aren't quite as simple as they seem, including The Wizard of Oz. But it's also something that I think We'll, we'll probably continue to explore a little bit in season two. And in this episode, there's a mention of the race riots that are happening in Detroit. So that on top of what's going on with their wages and Clance's reading of The Wizard of Oz, when you get to the end of the episode, it's just shot and directed so beautifully and um, the the parallels between the bar and Bert's party, but you know something's bad is gonna happen. And I'm I'm just so glad nothing bad happened at Bert's party. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that was something we thought a lot about. Uh yeah. And um and explored a lot. Um the truth is because uh you know it would have been tempting to write a version of this episode where Max also showed up at the queer bar and where somehow that would somehow that could be a race neutral space and everyone could be in the same place. And then of course the reality is that that wasn't true. And uh, white gay people were just as racist um, as white straight people much of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we knew that we were going to have to um, 
do a different environment for uh, for Max and telling the story of these house parties. I mean, it's another way that queer people, especially queer people of color, kind of found each other. And it was also, I think, a little less prone to be rated because it was a little less institutional. But also, I think a big part of us, um, you know, the beginning of the season is really hard for Max. And she has to deal with a lot just to get to the field. And then the first time she gets to the field, she doesn't even have the moment that she wants to. Um, so I think we felt very strongly about being, about wanting to tell the story and to earn the story of her really ending the season in joy. Um, yeah. Which is part of why that unfolds the the way that it does. I love that. In terms of directing, what was your favorite scene to direct in the most challenging one? Wow. Um, I loved so many of the scenes in this episode felt so special to me. Um, and, and I felt really lucky to be doing them. I think the party and the bar, um, that final sequence, um, you know, was definitely some of the most challenging, uh, work that we had to do, um, in this episode. And, you know, this is a big show and the budget for it is decent, but it's not as big probably as people think, or as many shows like this are. So all of these episodes were shot in nine days, uh, each, which is, it was pretty tight, uh, wow. for, for what they are. So there was a feeling in those scenes of both the environment was magical and we tried to really have our background be authentically queer and allow them to kind of express themselves in the scene. But also you really had the feeling that because by this point we'd been working together for a few months that the team of our crew and our mm -hmm. writers and our cast had just come together in a beautiful way and was doing very sophisticated, really beautiful work very, very quickly. So we never would have been able to do it without our own team um, at the core of those scenes. And yeah, I mean, seeing Shantae wear the suit, that was a big emotional, um, moment for me. Um, working with Rosie, uh, was a big emotional moment. I loved doing, um, the alleyway outside the bar. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of this magical landscape, um, of the industrial Midwest. And I love doing the one -er, uh that opens the episode outside the movie theater too. Um, Cause that's where you just have an ensemble of people who really love each other, having fun with each other and knowing that there's not going to be any cutting. So they, they have to kind of deliver for each other. Yeah. There's so much in this episode and we can't get to, to it all. I, I also just love how this episode, it's like the first one where they're really being treated finally as famous professional ballplayers yeah. in the town. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm a little bit curious, like how quickly in, in real life did that fandom come about? What we know is for, by the end of the first season of the league, um, they were on good enough financial footing that in the second season of the league, they expanded um, and included two more teams and I think it's also interesting, um, you know, part of what we explore a little bit that we'll continue to explore is just who the real audience and who the real fandom of the AGPBL is. 
you know, who's actually showing up um, to the games yeah. and it, the men who want to see the sort of charm school perfect girls or, or is it somebody else? Um, yeah. So that's part of what we were exploring there. But there's also just so many amazing anecdotes from the players that we spoke to about getting their, being asked for their first autograph, you know, kids dressing like them, all the things that famous professional athletes get. And we wanted to, to give them some of those moments here. And of course, Max, um, gets uh gets her own version of that in episode eight yeah you mentioned a couple scenes that were emotional for you to shoot what about in watching there's no crying in baseball but there's so much crying in the show yeah what did it for you in this one uh well i think my experience of watching this is is very different from right i've watched this <laughs> you know, 7,000 times and watched every piece of footage uh, that we have on it to put together this cut. So I, what makes me emotional is really seeing the cast come into themselves, both as individual performers and as an ensemble. So I love, for example, seeing um, the scene uh, where Clance is just ranting about the Wizard of Oz and Max is sort of like just the look in Shantae's eyes is, <laughs> and Bemi who played Clance actually wrote a lot of that dialogue. Um, so good for herself. And, you know, you can just see the two of them are really uh, in sync with each other. And I think, yeah, so I felt that same way in the scenes at the bar. Um, I thought Darcy did such beautiful work in the theater at the end um, right throughout the episode and I on love, the date too yeah on the date and the pizza yeah that I mean I think Abby and Shantae in their scene in the locker room is just really perfect performances from both of them where they both fully settled into these characters and the tone of the show but yeah that was also the the conversation about pizza uh uh, both on the date with Greta and then um, in uh, the locker room with Max. That's something really early on in the process when Abby and I first started writing the show, we were like, oh, pizza was just sort of like spreading around the country at this point. And at one point in the pilot, we had uh, Carson and Greta and Joe and then Max and Clance like stopped by a pizza joint on their way to the train which um, that fell out. And it was something that we we tried to bring into the show in a couple of different yeah. ways and it never felt exactly right. And I'm really glad that we did it here and that it kind of became a language for them. And now it's so wonderful to see that it's kind of a language for um, people who are watching the show too. Even though I knew it was coming, as soon as Rosie was on screen, I did start crying. But the one scene that really got me was right in the beginning Esty, I'm going to cry just saying it. Esty uh, saying, practicing her English, saying, I wanted to go to the movie. Yeah. Is so heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Priscilla did an amazing. I mean, that's another one. -er. So, yeah, uh, this is been. such a good episode for, for her. Yeah. No, she she's incredible. And I think it also is it's coming at this point in the season where you've come into the show with Carson and Max, and now you're sort of blooming outwards into all of it. So the ensemble's really um, taking off. And yeah, I mean, I think um, 
you know, Cat Williams in her book about Lefty Alvarez, who was a Cuban player who played in the league, um, although there yeah. were uh, ultimately way, way more of them, tell stories of just um, Lefty never really picked up uh, English and, and uh, may have had a learning disability. And I think that made it doubly hard for her. Um, so I wanted um, just to be able to kind of feel that loneliness here um, because obviously that's leading to where Esty's going in the next episode. But what Priscilla did with it was really beyond um, what I what I had in my head. Are there any other behind the scenes fun stories from this episode that you think <laughs> listeners would love? Boy, I mean, there's so many. This was a, a moment in our shoot also where we had kind of ironed out a lot of how the show was working and um, and how we were shooting things. And it felt like things were really starting to sing. I think these, these were by far the biggest baseball sequences that we had done um, yeah. in the season. But then the next two uh, episodes also have equally big ones. So I think that was really a moment of triumph in, um, in this episode, you know, that all of the peaches baseball in this episode was shot in one day. Um, and it was an immense challenge, uh, both for the crew and for the cast that I think everyone really felt at the end of it, like they had done something special, which for me, those are always the days that feel the best is where you can tell everyone on set is kind of feeling the vibe. There's so many other ones. I mean, Bemi's coming up with, uh, Dorothy, uh, Dorothy is the villain in the writer's room. The colonizer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Getting to see her do that on set. And that's another one of those ones where there's probably like another four minutes of improvisation that she did that, you know, could have wound up in the show, but, uh, it would have made that <laughs> incredibly long. Uh, yeah. So many, um, moments where throughout this show, there were so many moments where I pinched myself just that we were getting to do this. Um, but this episode definitely had a lot of them. Did you always know that Joe would be the one that would be sent away to a different team or did you explore other possibilities? No, we came to that pretty early on. Um, and part of that had to do with Greta and Joe's arc and the idea of you know, in the movie, you have um, Madonna and uh, May and May and Doris, right? Yeah. They're this sort of perfect twosome. So in talking about it in the room, we started to really talk about what that's like for the sidekick. Mm-hmm. And, and what it feels like when you have a friendship that you're used to being one-on-one that suddenly dissolved into this bigger group. Um, and so we wanted... Uh, Joe, who Melanie plays so beautiful to be able to be a star and to have her real moment of stardom. And I think that probably meant that she had to get away uh, from Greta in some ways. What are you most proud of with this episode? The thing that I'm most proud of with this episode is something that we touched on earlier in talking about the show, um, which is these are universal stories. They're also incredibly queer stories but everyone knows what it means to belong to something and to be surrounded by people who are like you. So I'm just so proud that we got to tell that story here. And, you know, one of the things that we said to ourselves with this season 
in general was, um, you know, in the pilot, Darcy says, like, for as long as we're here, we're going to rob the bank. And that kind of became like our unofficial rallying cry for the show too, where it was just like, if we only, we hope that we get to make the show for many years, but if we only get to make it once, we want to make sure that we did the things that we really couldn't live without doing. And that sequence of the bar and the party, I think, is one of those things. So I'm so glad that we got to do it. Well, I want to end on maybe a, a silly note quickly when Carson and Max are in the locker room and they're talking about, you know, I wish there was a name for people like us who aren't quite butch, aren't quite femme. Carson says, maybe it has to do with pizza. What's that pizza term? Did you throw any out? Is it a deep dish lesbian? Is it a thin crust lesbian? What are we going with like here? A, uh, <laughs> slicer. Like a slicer that helps you figure out which parts of yourself talk to which other parts of yourself, or it could be topic, you know, but I think Max was right, which is, you know, also us saying to ourselves at that point in the scene, maybe we've done enough with the pizza. You know? <laughs> Never enough pizza. Well, Will, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and also just for all the incredible work that you and the team and the writer's room. I mean, the ensemble that you put together both on screen and off screen is truly incredible. You know, I decided to do this podcast before even watching the show, just hoping that it would be good in that, oh. <laughs> you know, and it blew away every expectation I could have had for it. So, um, and, and that's what I'm hearing from so many people in the queer oh, community who have watched it. And I'm also rallying the straights, trying to get them on board as well, because yeah. like you said, we've had to watch their stories for years. <laughs> so. yeah. And these are, universal stories and it really should they are so much to ask but it means so much to us that the show is connecting with people and means something to the people that are watching it especially um, queer people who are our community because uh, maybe not every writer on the show but almost every writer on the show is queer you know most of our yeah is um, and and so thank you and thank everyone out there who's, uh, who's watching, it's really, it's a huge privilege for us. Yeah. I, I feel like we're at a point where we're asking, you know, tell our stories, tell our stories and our stories are being told more and more, but not always well. And I think this show not only tells them, but, but tells them well. So again, thank you so much. Looking forward to season two and everything to come. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to that interview and recap. And if you want more League of Their Own content, make sure that you're following Will. He's very active on Twitter at Will W. Graham and on Instagram at Will Whistler Graham. I'll link to it in the show notes. As you can tell, I am obsessed with this episode and I'm sure I'll revisit it on a future episode of this podcast. That's why it's important to make sure that you are subscribed to this pod so that you'll get notified when new episodes drop in the future because there's no consistent release calendar and we're going beyond just the recaps. You can follow the podcast at League of Their Own Pod on Instagram and you can follow me personally at TGI Carolyn. I also co-host another podcast called Diking Out. You can follow that at Diking out give it a listen and remember you can be friends of dorothy 
but keep in mind that she's a problematic colonizer. Take me right back to the track.